in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week in the show, the social smarts of magpies and making tougher timber. Plus, cloned crayfish in Madagascar. This is the Nature Podcast for the 8th of February 2018. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up today, it's reporter Adam Levy. And this week, he's marvelling at his own intellect. As far as animals go, I reckon I'm pretty smart. I mean, there probably aren't many non-human animals that can beat me at chess, for example. Or write a pithy podcast intro, for that matter. But where does my intelligence come from? For that matter, where does intelligence itself come from? What drives it to evolve? Well, broadly, there are two schools of thought on the matter. One suggests that challenges in our environment drives the evolution of intelligence. For example, intelligence could have evolved in response to a need to catch or access hard-to-reach food. But there's another idea, the social intelligence hypothesis. This suggests that intelligence evolves so animals can better handle complex social situations, working out who are their friends, enemies, and anything in between. To test this hypothesis, researchers previously compared the brain size of a species with the average size of their social groups. Species who tend to live in bigger groups should need more social intelligence. Sure enough, it seems like there may be a link. But there are plenty of confounding factors when comparing whole different species, and brain size certainly isn't exactly the same as intelligence. Now, though, a study has come out that's taken a very different approach. The team measured intelligence directly, and they didn't compare different species. I phoned up one of the authors, Alex Thornton, to find out more. So what we wanted to do is to go within species, and and our, our logic was that, well, if we expect social factors to have um, an influence on cognition, then we should expect to see them within species as well as between species. So we studied Australian magpies. And so we were interested in asking a, first of all, a developmental question. So does growing up in a bigger group, does that have an influence on on your cognitive performance? I mean, what, what does it actually look like to test a magpie's intelligence? So, I mean, I guess you could think of them almost like a little uh, mini avian IQ test. Um, one of them, for instance, is, is a colour association test. So the idea is can, can birds learn that one colour is rewarded? So you've got these little wells with different coloured lids on them. And if you look in wells with lids of one colour, you'll find a reward. And so we can look to see how long it takes the birds to learn that association these animals, they're very curious and they're also very motivated by food. So we, we were giving them mozzarella cheese, which they, uh, they particularly like. So what did all these tests on magpies end up revealing about their intelligence? Initially, all of the, all of the youngsters um, performed equally badly when they were very young. But as they grew older, they, the ones that were in larger groups started to outperform the ones that were in smaller groups. 
We were also interested in understanding the consequences of these differences between individuals in, in their cognitive performance. So actually, does it pay to be smart, as it were? And so for that, we could look at the, at the breeding success of females who, who were doing well on our tests or doing badly. And again, we found a strong positive relationship where the females who were doing well on these tests tended to, to produce more, more offspring, to be more successful in reproduction. And so this raises the possibility that actually natural selection might act on this variation in cognitive performance. So you found that intelligence does indeed seem to go hand in hand with the size of these magpies groups. You also found that this intelligence corresponded to how reproductively successful the females were. Together, what does this tell us? Well, so it tells us that in this species, at least, social factors have an influence within an individual's lifetime over, over their cognition. And because there's this reproductive benefit to being clever, it also raises the possibility that natural selection may, may act on these differences between individuals. So it kind of unites this idea of developmental factors that are happening within an individual's lifetime with potentially evolutionary processes that would happen across the generations. Alex Thornton there. So where does that leave us with the social intelligence hypothesis? Comparative psychologist Andrew Whiten has written a news and views on the study and is impressed by this new research. I think it's an excellent contribution. So what I think this study contributes is putting these three things together, that uh, social group size predicts intellectual capacity, and intellectual capacity then seems to predict uh, reproductive success, as of course it would have to do for this evolutionary hypothesis to be correct. I think it's made an important contribution in linking all those three things together that perhaps haven't been uh, successfully linked together in, in previous approaches to the problem. So it seems like studying these social birds answers some important questions about the evolution of intelligence. Does that mean the case is closed and the social intelligence hypothesis has been confirmed? Whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> well, I don't think so. Um, I, I would say there are a couple of limitations to this this uh, study. Is it's an important pioneering one in in what it's done. But one thing one could say is, well, the actual tests used are really just about learning. I mean, surely there should be more to intelligence than that. Um, you know, one, one might hope to look at sort of creative intelligence and solving really novel problems. Andrew also points out that group size isn't necessarily the best way of working out how socially complex a species is. After all, cows like to hang out in pretty big groups, but aren't too tricky to outsmart. He hopes future work could help tackle these limitations. But for Alex Thornton, there's one particular question that he wants to answer first and foremost. So the, you know, the next stage really for our research is to try and understand why. Why is it that growing up in a large social group seems to have this influence on the development of cognition? What is it? What are the informational challenges that animals face in larger groups that seem to have this impact on, on how their cognition develops? That was Alex Thornton, who's based at the University of Exeter here in the UK. Andrew Whiten is also here in the UK. He's at the University of St Andrews. Find the paper and the news and views online at nature.com forward slash nature. If you listened to the show last week, you'll have heard me talking to Shanti Papu about the discovery of some ancient stone tools in India. This is how I started the piece. 
Almost two million years ago, our ancient ancestor Homo erectus is estimated to have first migrated out of Africa. Well, we've had some feedback. Twitter user Dantag reached out to us and said, Come on, Nature Podcast, less than a minute in and you claim Homo erectus is one of our ancestors. Well, I wondered what I should have said, so I reached out to Ewan Calloway, who's been reporting on archaeology stories for nature for a very long time. This is what he told me. Um, I tend to avoid the term ancestor, as, as your commenter pointed out. And I, I, I typically describe something like Homo erectus, which is a hominin, which is kind of a jargony word. I like to call them ancient human relatives, right? So, you know, it's not directly ancestral to us. That's something that we can never prove. But it's an ancient relative of ours. And I think, I think that's a pretty good way of describing Australopithecus um, or Homo erectus or, or even Neanderthals. Um, so, yeah, I'd go with that. You and Callaway there. And thanks for your feedback, Dantag. If you want to get in touch with us, we'll tell you how at the end of the show. Now, though, we can't keep him away. Adam Levy's back with this week's research highlights. Researchers have found an easy way to make some tricky polymers. Polymers are chains of molecules, and gradient polymers gradually transition from one molecule to another as you move along the chain. They have unique mechanical and thermal properties, but are a pain to put together. So the team used an emulsion, where droplets of one liquid are suspended in another. They dissolved one type of molecule in the droplets and the other in the surrounding liquid. Polymerization begins inside the droplets, and then as that molecule gets used up, the other molecules start joining the chain, forming the gradient. Find out more about this chain reaction in Angavanta Shami International Edition. Wildfires are creating so much smoke, they're having volcano-size effects on sunlight. The smoke can dim sunlight around the world, and the effect from North American fires was particularly bad in August last year. Researchers in France measured the layers of smoke in the atmosphere using both ground-based and satellite observations. The data showed that the smoke blocked more sunlight than a 2009 volcanic eruption in Russia. Smoke blocking sunlight could have important effects on the global climate. Find that paper in Geophysical Research Letters. In Madagascar, an invasive army of rapidly multiplying clones is advancing through many of the country's freshwater habitats. These clones belong to a new species only a few decades old, which appears to have come into existence in an aquatic tank in Germany. The species in question is Procamborus virginalis, also known as the marbled crayfish. Reaching only up to about 10 centimetres in length, these crustaceans look like small lobsters, and in fact they're from the same taxonomic order known as the decapoda, along with prawns, crabs and shrimp. The first recorded appearance of this new type of crayfish is believed to have been at a German aquatic trade fair in 1995, but these freshwater animals soon became popular pets and were distributed to other aquatic pet owners around the country. One of these owners spotted something puzzling, as Frank Lico explains. One of these guys approached the specialist in the field because he had noticed that he had only females in his aquarium. And this is something um, that was unheard of in the aquarium community. Normally you have males and females in a crayfish population if you keep them in the aquarium. Frank, based at the German Cancer Research Centre in Heidelberg, has a paper out this week looking at the genomics of the marbled crayfish. 
Research showed that this species was able to accomplish something unseen in any other crayfish, or indeed any other decapod. It reproduced by parthenogenesis. This is a form of asexual reproduction, which, in this instance, doesn't require an egg to be fertilised. Instead, females alone produce eggs with complete sets of chromosomes that develop into female progeny. And when it comes to sets of chromosomes, the marble crayfish is, again, a bit weird compared to other crayfish. The story here begins with two distantly related members of the Floridian crayfish species, Procambarus phallux. Let's call their two different genomes A and B. When these crayfish mated sexually, they would usually produce offspring with an AB genome, with one set of chromosomes from each parent. At some point, though, something odd happened, and one of these sets of chromosomes doubled, producing an offspring with two sets of A and one of B. This is known as polyploidy. Quite when and how this macro mutation occurred is unknown, but it does seem that stress may have been involved. What has been observed also in other organisms and other invertebrates, for example in oysters, is that you can make a genome uh, polyploid, for example by cold shocking it or by stressing the animal. This is something that is often done in aquaculture to increase um, the yield, um, because these animals usually get bigger and produce more meat uh, per animal. But what exactly has happened in this case, we don't know. Whatever the reason, a new species was born one that no longer requires males to reproduce. Frank and his colleagues have sequenced the genomes of several marble crayfish to learn a bit more about their genetic identity. We sequenced 11 animals from very distinct sources. Some of them were lineages from the pet trade. Some of them were wild catchers from Germany. Some of them were wild catchers from Madagascar. The differences in the genomes of these 11 animals was tiny. In fact, when looking for individual differences in the protein-coding regions of DNA, known as single nucleotide variants, the team only found four. This confirmed that these crayfish, regardless of where they were from, were clones of each other. In a genome that is 3.5 gigabases big, meaning it's bigger than the human genome, this is an astonishingly small number. I mean, this number surprises many people. Why is it so small? And the reason is, again, because of the uh, short time span that the marble crayfish has had to evolve so far. Of course, over time, they will accumulate more and more genetic variation. So um, they will diversify, but they haven't done this yet. For such a young species that originated in Germany only a few decades ago, the marble crayfish has already covered a lot of ground and populations can be found in the waterways of several European countries. The reason? Humans releasing them into the wild, of course. While the cold winters found in much of Europe appear to be keeping these crayfish in check, the same can't be said for the island nation of Madagascar. Somehow the marble crayfish found itself there, thousands of miles away from Germany, and the population exploded. The team analysed several more genomes, this time from marbled crayfish taken from various parts of Madagascar, and confirmed that once again the animals come from a familiar source. On the genetic level, the German animals and the Madagascar animals are indistinguishable. You can't separate them. So this probably means that the Malagasy population originated from a German animal and that this formed um, the clone that is now spreading globally. The marbled crayfish seems to represent a perfect storm for an invasive species. It's adaptable to different environments, it lays lots of eggs, and you only need a single animal to start a population. The team estimate that the range of this species on Madagascar has increased a hundredfold in just 10 years, 
with a crayfish population that could number in the millions. You can find marbled crayfish close to the sea, but you can also find them in rice paddies, in streams, in lakes, very different environments, but always the same genome. So how does this animal adapt? It can't be genetic because it only has one genome. So my opinion is that it has to be epigenetic, and this will be a fascinating line of research for the future. Frank is interested in how the clonal nature of the marbled crayfish might help us understand more about cancer, particularly its epigenetics, which are the heritable changes in gene expression that don't require actual changes in DNA sequence. These genomes could also tell us something about tumour evolution. The one aspect would be um, that we use marble crayfish as a model to understand clonal genome evolution. This is a key feature of human tumours. But when a tumour is detected um, by, by a physician, it's usually so far evolved that uh, it's hard to retrace the early steps. We have a genome here that is in its very early steps of evolution, and we can follow the early steps by following it over time. That was Frank Lico. You can find his Nature Ecology and Evolution paper over at nature.com slash n-e-e. Next up today, reporter Noah Baker has been investigating a new method for making super strong wood. Wood is one of the oldest and best known construction materials on the planet. But that doesn't mean that its full potential has been reached. As I explore this material, we start to realise there are a lot of potentials uh, in this um, earth-abundant material. That's Liang Binghu from the University of Maryland in the States. But who hasn't always worked with wood? I've been uh, working in a company uh, on carbon nanotubes. But after colleagues showed him an image of wood fibres taken with a scanning electron microscope, who was taken aback? I was actually confused. I thought this was carbon nanotubes, and he told me this is actually cellulose nanofibres. Cellulose nanofibres are the long aligned fibres which make up about 40% of wood's mass. We'll tweet a pic so you can see what he's talking about, at Nature Podcast. Once I noticed the similarity of carbon nanotubes and the cellulose nanofibers, I realised this is a material I want to work on and that has a lot of potential to be explored. Who wanted to try to maximise wood's mechanical strength by engineering it at the nanoscale? But first, he needed to understand the nanostructure of wood. As trees grow, you know, you have these wonderful uh, nanofibers along the growth direction and with lignin embedded in, uh, uh, in the wood. This lignin is an important player. Lignin is like a binder, uh, glue everything together in a tree. So we have fibers glued together by lignin and then there's one final structural component. The fibers are arranged in a way that they have these micro-sized channels they help pumping the water, pumping the nutrition uh, up to the top of the tree. But if you look as a mechanical uh, uh, structure material, these big channels are defects. So our process is basically remove these big channels by compressing them. The idea is that by squishing out these channels, who can remove the mechanical defects? But before he can press the wood, he has to remove that glue-like lignin. However, crucially, not all of it. To be able to hold this structure together, we have to keep part of the lignin inside wood. And by doing so, you can realise the potential of this material. The process who uses is quite simple. In fact, it's very similar to the process used to make paper. He removes some of the lignin from the wood in a high-temperature chemical bath and then compresses it. In our process, 
we carefully keep the integrity of the wood and then you press it into this uh, uh, strong and tough material. After testing, the densified wood's strength and toughness were significantly increased. In the end, it's still a piece of wood, but the strength is about 10 to 20 times higher. And the toughness at the same time is also 10 to 20 times higher. And when you normalize by the weight, it's actually about four to five times better than the best steel. Who compared the densified wood to another well-known material? The strength and toughness is very similar to uh, carbon fiber, but it's about 10 times cheaper than carbon fiber. Whose densified wood isn't quite as strong or tough as carbon fiber just yet, but it isn't far off. So, what could super strong wood be useful for? Well, who suggested the construction industry? He even mentioned skyscrapers, but he has plenty of other ideas too. So this material can be used in, uh, in many applications when you need the strength and toughness, and even better if you need a lightweight. You know, for lightweight vehicles, for uh, wind turbines, for airplanes. Who isn't claiming this material can do everything? It can be brittle, and although there is an improvement over natural wood, there remains a possible problem with moisture resistance. But no one material can ever suit all applications. Now, who isn't alone in this research area? Other researchers have already achieved somewhat comparable results, and some actually consider this paper to be a fairly underwhelming advance. Fred Kamke, chair of wood-based composite science at Oregon State University, also noted that, quote, these other methods are probably much less expensive than a seven-hour boil in a caustic solution, end quote. He was referring to Hu's delignification process. Hu, however, believes that his process is still economically viable. To be honest, we have to do a careful comparison, uh, but I think it's going to be fairly cost-effective uh, compared to many of the uh, composites uh, people made using biomass, uh, using even uh, carbon fibre or glass fibres, yeah. Either way, who has patented certain steps of his process, specifically the bits related to the partial lignin removal. He's also in talks with the automotive industry and the construction industry and aims to commercialise his product. So who knows, maybe in 20 years' time, you'll re-listen to this episode while you drive to work in your wooden car. That was Liang Binghu from the University of Maryland. Quick straw poll then, everyone. Which do you think is more likely? A, that people will be driving wooden cars in the future, or B, that they'll be listening to 20-year-old nature podcasts? Answers on a postcard. Or on Twitter, at Nature Podcast, whichever you prefer. Last up this week, it's the news chat. And joining me again here is Ewan Calloway, a senior reporter here at Nature. Ewan, thanks for coming back. Yeah, anytime. OK, so first up today, we're going to be talking again about ancient hominins. And this time we're going to revisit a story from last year about a rather controversial paper suggesting that humans might have settled in North America an awful lot earlier than previously thought. Ewan, in the first instance then, perhaps you could refresh our listeners' memories with, uh, with what happened before. Yeah, I can't remember if we covered this one on the podcast, but listeners probably will have heard of it. Basically, about a year ago, April or so 2017, Nature published a paper from some researchers claiming that this mastodon found in suburban San Diego was butchered by humans 130,000 years ago, which is a crazily old date for humans to be in, in North America. The best evidence suggests that humans from Asia across the Bering Land Bridge, you know, 20 or so thousand years ago, 25,000 years ago, and 
made their way down to the Americas. I think the oldest archaeological site that most people you know, universally agree is a site is about 15,500 years old or something like that. So this find from San Diego pushed human occupation of, of the Americas back 100 and 115,000 years, let's put it. And uh, not, everyone, not everyone believed it. Let's, 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 just, let's just put it that way. So this then had the potential, I guess, to rewrite a lot of previously held dogma about, you know, human movements and all the rest of it. But as you say there, it's it's not without its naysayers. And what's happened this week then? First, it's important to say that as soon as this paper was published, there was criticism. I reported it out as a reporter and very few of my outside sources believed it. They just said, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. What's new, though, is that Nature is publishing a response from a team of archaeologists basically saying, this looks more like the sort of damage, the damage they saw in the Mastodon bones in San Diego. This looks like damage that was caused by a digger or backhoe, you know, construction equipment or just natural processes. And to kind of back up that claim, they looked out their backyards to a, a site with a, with a couple dozen uh, ancient mammoths and found damage patterns in the mammoth bones that they say are very similar to the ones from the mastodon bones, which the authors of that paper use as evidence to say, this, is, this looks like it was hit by a stone tool by a hominin. What these authors are saying in this new paper is basically, I mean, you know, hominins may have been here 130,000 years ago, but this ain't evidence for it. Yes. So in the brief communication that you can read in Nature this week, they do seem to sort of systematically go through some of the claims in the previous paper and... Uh, I mean, are unflinching in the, in their thoughts. Yeah, I spoke with them, and you know, their, their thoughts were pretty instant. You know, when the paper was published, and it's just taken a, quite a few months to get this thing thing out, as as it often does in in science publishing. But yeah, I mean, I think they go step by step and say that none of this meets their criteria for proving that that humans did this. They say they're. There are other explanations in, in every single case. And the authors of the original paper, you know, they're allowed their one-page rebuttal. They stand by their argument. And they told me the other day when I spoke with them on the phone, they just said, look, you know, we realize this is an extraordinary hypothesis, but just come look at these bones and, and see what you think. But nobody's convinced so far that I've spoken with. Well, I mean, I guess the Latin root of the word science is knowledge. Um, and if one group is saying X, the other group is saying Y, and then our first group is saying, no, no, it really is X again, where does that lead us? Where do we take it next? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, we're doing science and you should present a hypothesis that is falsifiable. You know, what will prove you wrong? If you're not doing that, you're not doing science. And I don't really know what the answer is here. You know, I, I, I asked this question to the authors of the original paper making this claim that humans were in California 130,000 years ago. And they said, if somebody can come up with a better explanation, then humans did this. And, you know, obviously the authors of this response think they've come up with quite a few explanations. So what do you do? You just shrug your shoulders and the community will decide. Well, let's change tack completely then, I think, in this instance. And let's go to South Korea and a government investigation into manuscript authors. Um, What have we got going on there then? Yeah, I mean, the big news in South Korea, obviously, is the Winter Olympics coming up really soon. But the other big news, it's been all over Korean newspapers, is that the government has launched an investigation into scientists who put their children as co-authors on research papers in order to boost their children's chances of getting into university. As I said, the government has looked into accusations that this has happened. So far, they've found 39 instances in which uh, kids were on papers, but they actually did something. You know, this is a science project, summer, summer job, that sort of thing. But they found 43 instances where it seems like 
the, the kids didn't really earn their authorship. Okay, so they found this many papers then. Is that all of them? I would seriously doubt it. It sounds like they're going to be doing a much more thorough investigation, going through lots of papers and identifying those that have children as authors. I guess they'll be looking for instances where there was no contribution to the paper. And in the instances where they find those, I think you know, they'll, they'll be referred to the, to the universities. But uh, as our story indicates, that some of these could result in the dismissal of uh, the researcher involved because this is misconduct. You know, putting somebody's name on a paper who didn't do any work, whether it's your children, your, your mother, your grandmother, or your, uh, your barber, that, that's, that's misconduct. But I guess people putting names of friends colleagues, higher-ups on papers is something that's gone on for, well, a very, very long time. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a term. It's called ghost authorship. And it's, it's something that, as you say, has gone on all the time. You can imagine that, you know, you put your advisor on or some, some senior person in your department on a paper and they haven't done any work to earn it. So, yeah, this, this goes on all the time. And it's important to note that journals and, and others are, are trying to crack down on this. If you look at the back of, of a lot of papers, and I think including papers in, in Nature, you'll see an explanation of what each author did to earn their authorship in, in this case. So I think funders, journals, uh, universities realize that ghost authorship is a problem and you know, taking steps to deal with it. But with so many journals out there, it's hard to police them all. Um, so I, I think this problem will continue of ghost authorship, whether, whether it's children or Nobel laureates. Thank you very much then, Ewan. For more on these stories and the latest science news, head over to nature.com news. And some science news from a few weeks ago. You may remember Adam finding out about a tiny magnetic robot. Oh, that robot is adorable. Well, if you want to see it in action, you can check out a short film all about it online at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Well, that's it for this week then. Don't forget to tweet us at Nature Podcast or you can send us an email podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>